Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, begin reading in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he, is, he still speaks. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We looked at verses 1 through 3 as we came to this chapter. We're continuing to study the subject of faith as a response to the gospel. We looked at Hebrews 8 through 10, great exposition of the new covenant and Christ's sacrifice and his priesthood. And what is the encouragement in chapter 10? It's to draw near through Christ, certainly there are relationships that we have with one another that need to be maintained and strengthened and encouraged, but as we think about our relationship to God, it's to draw near. And as we draw near, we draw near by faith. The writer here has drawn attention to what faith is, what faith does, sort of a description or a definition of faith in the first few verses. And then he's giving some illustrations throughout the chapter. And this chapter is full of illustrations of faith. It's an encouraging chapter to read through. In some cases, these momentous acts of faith, or in terms of the scope and the length of the person's faith, we see the strong faith, for instance, that Noah had as he spent decades building this ark, and God eventually brought the flood, but that was a testimony to his faith. We'll consider verse 7, but we also have just simple acts of faith, simple things that people did, things that they said, ways in which they showed their faith. I'm not saying easy, but simple. I think when we look at the three illustrations that we'll look at today, there's some simplicity to that. But also, we would say, not easy, particularly as we look at Noah's faith. And faith is trusting in God, 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. But as the writer here describes faith, he describes faith in terms of it's taking hold or possessing what has yet to be. That would be hope, verse 1. Or, and or, I would certainly say and, because it's not merely that. It's also the conviction of things not seen. It's what one does not see with their eyes. Faith sees the unseen. It takes hold of what has yet to be and what one cannot see. And of course, we can't see God, but God is real. We can't see certain truths, but we confess them because God has declared them to be true. In addition to that sort of definition, we also see that faith receives the commendation of God. Verse 2 says, For by it the men of old, or the elders, those who are in the past, and based on the chapter, we'd have to say not just men, but also women, gained approval. God commended their faith. One of the ways in which he's commending their faith is by recording what took place in Scripture, but also by this chapter, which recollects that. So it's a double commendation, you might say. And of course, each one of them will stand before God as we will. Faith receives the commendation of God. And thirdly, faith enables us to understand what is beyond our ability to personally witness. And that's where verse 3, as he describes creation, it is by faith that we understand creation, God's laying a foundation by his own word, what we now see the outward, we see the evidence of his creation, but nobody was there to witness that except the Lord. And uh, we don't know exactly when the angels were created, perhaps the angels as well as they saw what God did and praised him for that. But we behold those things by faith. We take hold of those things that we did not personally witness, what we could not see by faith, by trusting, resting in the word of God. Verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 7 are some illustrations of faith. So this is faith illustrated in three lives. I don't know who you would choose if you were to go through Genesis and find those who lived before the flood. I don't think these are the only three, but certainly three that draw attention to what faith is and what faith looks like. The first one in verse 4 is Abel. Adam and Eve, of course, had Cain and then Abel. And we know the story of Cain and Abel and what happened. But the writer here draws attention to what happened before Cain murdered Abel, actually occasioned the murder of Abel. And that was this sacrifice that they both made to God, but Abel's was better. And let's take a moment and turn back to Genesis chapter 4 to look at that in context. Genesis 3 is the curse because of sin. It's the fall of man. Man is now out of the garden. God gives Adam and Eve children, first of all, 
Cain, and then Abel in verse 2. Start reading in verse 2. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well... Or if you do what is pleasing, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And of course, we see the following act of Cain as he murdered his brother in verse 8. God had warned him in verses 6 and 7 of the danger of being captured and mastered by sin. The picture is of a lion that is waiting to pounce. God warned him, and he did not heed the warning. But prior to that and prior to his anger was this occasion when Cain brings an offering, when Abel brings an offering to the Lord. Again, the writer of Hebrews is commending Abel for his faith and his offering of a better sacrifice, and I would suggest on the basis of his faith. It was faith pursuing obedience to God, whereby he brought the sacrifice that he did. What was Cain's sacrifice, which we learn about first in verse 3? It's an offering or a gift to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Why is that a problem? This is part of what he did for a living, he is a worshiper, isn't he? He's worshiping God. This is something that related to his own life and produce. Why would it be a problem with offering something that he had produced and labored over so that he could give it to the Lord? Well, we learned something about Cain's failure from Abel's obedience. What is... Abel offering? How did the Lord express His approval of one and His disregard for the other? We can talk about that, but if you look just at Abel's offering, notice it says, on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. So what is taking place here is, obviously, if it's mentioning his flock, this is animals that he's bringing to the Lord, but because it says fat portions, that means these animals had to be slaughtered, that their blood had to be shed. And we can look at that aspect of it, but before we even look at that aspect of it, notice it says Abel and his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock. What did he bring? He brought the best. The first, not just some of the fruit of the ground as Cain did, but the first. And in Scripture, God, as He required sacrifice, demanded the best. It's a lamb without blemish, 
without spot, the firstborn. And this, of course, cost Abel something to do that. To do other than that was reproved by God throughout Scripture. Malachi chapter 1, verse 8 says, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? The idea that you could just sort of give God the leftovers or something that was of value but not your best. God said that's actually evil to give something that's not pleasing to the Lord, something that is blind. He says, when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? And then he asks the question, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? In other words, even if you had a guest, an earthly dignitary, if you offered that to him, would he be pleased? No, that would be an insult. So bringing it to God is even more of an insult. So they both offered something to the Lord, but Abel offered the best that he had. And while they both offered, the word for offering is the same. When you look at verse 4 and 5, it's the same word. But Abel offers a bloody offering. It's the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions, which means that they were killed, that their blood was shed. And that fat, which was an evidence of the blessing of the Lord, was offered up and consumed upon an altar. I'm not trying to add to Scripture here. I'm saying that when you look at sacrifice in Scripture, that's how it's pictured. We don't see the details here, but we're supposed to, I believe, look at what happens. And as that is consistent with later revelation, really believe that God had revealed something here. There has to be some standard by which he is judging Cain's sacrifice and Abel's. And the one standard by which he declares one to be a righteous sacrifice and the other to be unrighteous or not good. It is possible, and some would draw attention to this, that after the first sin of Adam and Eve in chapter 3, when God, verse 21 of chapter 3, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, that the animals out of which those skins were made were sacrificed, and that that was the revelation of how a person was to offer sacrifice to God. One writer said, we undoubtedly see in this incident the first institution of animal sacrifices. For that such a right should have originated in mere human device cannot be maintained without any show of reason. And of course, we know what Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that can take away sins. No, the blood that was shed, the blood that was poured out, was a testimony of one who was to come. So is that firstling of the flock, the most excellent animal, the one that's chosen, that's first, that's best, that's given to the Lord, that also was to be a picture of a sacrifice to come. There's something else, and while we could look at Genesis, I think we have to go back to Hebrews, if you would, to see the writer of Hebrews drawing attention to another aspect, and that is that this is Abel's faith that is directing his actions. 
He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Sacrifices are not merely to be offered as if they have merit in and of themselves. You don't just bring something to God, and that's worship. There's something about the heart of the worshiper that is essential for it to be true worship in this outward act. And that essential part is faith. Someone described an offering, the essential nature of an offering, as the devotion of man expressed in an outward act. The outward act is a testimony to what is taking place in the heart. And when someone offers the first and the best and also offers a sacrifice of blood to God, there's a testimony there. Certainly is a testimony of what would be to come. Now, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. And some debate has occurred over that statement, through which, does it, does it refer to the sacrifice or to the faith of Abel? And I would suggest it does refer to the faith, although that's farther away in the sentence. It is through that faith that by that faith he offers obediently, but it's through that faith that he obtains testimony. Remember what we're talking about in this chapter is faith, verse 1, and by that faith, verse 2, it says the men of old or the elders or the ancients gained approval. So what was it that gained the approval of God with regard to Abel? Well, it wasn't just a sacrifice. That's what God apparently had specified. But it was Abel's faith, his offering it in faith. And you can find different argumentation for that. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on Hebrews, suggests some of the same, those same thoughts I followed his thinking in uh, this interpretation. He says, first, it's not the apostles' design in this chapter to specify the kind of sacrifices were that, which were acceptable unto God. And secondly, his obvious purpose was to illustrate and demonstrate the efficacy of faith. Thirdly, he says, because the apostle here exemplifies what he had just said of the Old Testament saints. And lastly, he says, because this agrees much more closely with the analogy of faith. By the one perfect offering of Christ is the Christian constituted righteous before God. But it is through faith that he obtains the witness of the same to his heart. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the faith of Abel that obtains this testimony from God. The testimony of God is the reception of the sacrifice. How did that happen? Matthew Henry says fire came down from heaven, consumed the one, not the other. We don't see that in the text. But there had to be some indication to Cain and to Abel that one was accepted and the other not. It would have had to be very obvious. And as it becomes obvious, God gives testimony to Abel by receiving those gifts. It could have been by fire from heaven. God did do that at other times. But look at the verse again. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, a bloody sacrifice, the best that he had, 
by faith, and it says, through which, through that faith, he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying or receiving those gifts. That was the testimony that this was an acceptable sacrifice. And then notice what it says at the end of the verse, and through faith, though he is dead, though Abel is dead, we know how he died. That's not part of the reference here. We know that he was murdered. He's called righteous Abel. Cain, John says, was of that wicked one. So we know that occurred as a sin, a murder of one brother of the other. But it says that Abel, by faith, is still speaking. He's still speaking. Now you might ask, well, where did he speak? Well, you go back to Genesis, there's not a lot of conversation. There's just Cain calling his brother Abel to go out in the field, and that's the end of Abel. He kills him. Do you know the Bible calls Abel a prophet? Woe to you, Jesus said, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And then he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Matthew and Luke record that statement of the Lord. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah draws attention to where Zechariah was killed between the altar and the house of God. He says, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So the blood of all the prophets from Abel, how is Abel a prophet? Prophets are spokesmen from God. Why is he included? And how is it that he is still speaking or that by faith he still speaks? And I would suggest that it's this, it's by Abel's obedience to God that through his sacrifice, he prophesied of a coming sacrifice for sinners. By the offering of the firstling of the flock, and the fat portions means it was a bloody sacrifice. The best, it was a testimony to the coming of the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world. By the shedding of the blood of the animal in the sacrifice, there was a testimony to the necessity of death because of sin. There was a testimony to the holiness of God and His wrath against sin. The necessity of blood being shed for the remission of sins. He testified to the justice of God, which had to be satisfied. And even as God accepted Abel's sacrifice, it shows us that as a foreshadowing or as a foretelling, God would accept the true sacrifice of Christ upon the cross of Calvary. So ultimately, Abel was testifying to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't see all that played out right there in Genesis, but in the scope of the Word of God, we understand that's what sacrifices were about. That's why John the Baptist, when Jesus came, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Abel, as he offered up that sacrifice by faith, even though he's dead, it's that sacrifice that still speaks. It still testifies to that one true sacrifice, and that way 
ultimately through Jesus Christ. John, in 1 John chapter 3, says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. His actions were consistent with God's standard. And that's the standard, of course, that God had set. Later, that standard was placed in law for all of Israel. And it was that standard which God judged, even in the days of Malachi, when God said those words through Malachi, why do you bring the lame? Why do you bring the blind and sick? It was a reproof to those. And ultimately what they were doing was not just bringing a poor sacrifice, they were lying about who Jesus Christ is. He's not the lame, he's not the blind He's not the sick. This is the perfect Son of God. Sinless Son of God who came to offer Himself as a sacrifice for sinners. The best sacrifice, the pure sacrifice, the true sacrifice, the one that actually took away sins. Abel obeyed. And by his obedience, he prophesied of the Savior who would come. Now, I think there is a testimony here to just simply obeying by faith what God has revealed. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, the songwriter said, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust, that's faith, and obey. Faith is obedient. It receives God's word and follows it. The obedience is an illustration, a demonstration of trust in the heart. So I think we can ask ourselves, are we obeying God today? Are we doing his will? Are we submitting to what his word has to say? Abel did, and even though it cost him, he did what was right. And here, centuries later, the writer of Hebrews is drawing attention to not only that his life had significance, but his prophetic ministry continues on to the very day of his writing, and even here, 2,000 years later. That's the influence of faith. We can see faith in the martyrs. Matthew Henry, as he was preaching on the occasion of his father's death at his father's funeral, said the martyrs of Jesus speak to us that the truths of God are precious and valuable things and worth suffering for, and that there is a reality in, uh, in future unseen things. Now, I'm not saying that Abel had in mind everything that we just, that I just considered and talked about with regard to Jesus Christ, but God had promised a Redeemer, Genesis chapter 3, and He had shown a way that sacrifice was to be given. And it's in light of that that he obeyed God. And so there's really a testimony to the fact that he did have faith, that he did have trust in God. You can see it by his obedience. And that obedience showed forth something about God. So faith in the life of Abel, faith that is demonstrated by obedience. But then look at verse 5, faith in the life of Enoch that brings pleasure to God. 
You can see in verse 5 and 6 a reference to pleasing God, the necessity of faith in order to please God. In fact, verse 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So this, what we're talking about, is essential in order to please the Lord. And Enoch is an illustration of it. We don't have a lot about Enoch's life in the Scriptures. We do know that he was a man of faith. If you want to take, turn back to Genesis chapter 5, just look at a couple verses, a few verses about his life. Genesis chapter 5, Noah's in Genesis chapter 6, so as the writer of Hebrews is drawing attention to illustrations of faith, he's going back and showing us that in the early pages of our Bible, which if you're reading through the Bible this year, you've already read through some illustrations of faith. I know Genesis 5 is a lot of names and a lot of records about people's number of years and their death. And it seems like we read chapters like this, we try to get through them as quickly as possible, but sometimes a passage like this slows us down. Maybe when we see somebody like Methuselah, who lived a 969 years, that gets our attention. But before that, we find his father, Enoch. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Verse 22, Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He was not. And if you look at the ages of the others who died in this chapter, he is not, before many of the others died, hundreds of years more. They lived hundreds of years more than he did. So at the age of 365, suddenly Enoch is gone. Why is that? Well, the end of verse 24 says, God took him. Now, sometimes we use that word for death, but this is not the idea of death. This is the idea of translation. This is the idea that someone would not have to experience death. This is what happened to Elijah when he was carried up into heaven with the chariot, fiery horses and chariot. Same kind of thing. We don't get the method here. It's possible it was the same way. We just don't have that revealed. But what was going on in his life? There are two statements. Verse 22, it says, well, obviously he became a father, had other children. But verse 22, it says he walked with God. And verse 24, Enoch walked with God. The word is a little different as it's... Uh, translated here, it looks like it's the same, a little different in verse 24 is this idea of a continual walking for all of that time. 300 years in terms of days, it's a lot of days. This is the time before the flood when people lived longer. God, I believe, after the flood started to take man's life earlier, but here, hundreds of years. But I mean, Methuselah is gone within a short amount of time, but for 300 years.
What would that be? 23, 24? That's a long time. He just walked with God. He fellowshiped with God. This is an idea in Scripture. If you just study the concept, you could find that phrase, walk with God, or Genesis 17, when God says, walk before me. 2 Kings 23, as Josiah walks after the Lord, or Micah 4.5, when Micah says, walk in the name of the Lord our God. And of course, we have walking in the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Micah 6 says, this is really what God requires of man if you live in this world. This is God's world. He made man in his image to live upon it. What are his obligations for you and me? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a defining command that all of us need to obey. Micah 6, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good. This is what's pleasing. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice... That is the word righteousness, to do what is righteous, to, to conform to God's standard. That has to do with obedience. To love kindness or loyalty. And then he says, and to walk humbly with your God. Walk with God. If you know God, you really come to understand who he is. Humility comes if you have faith. You realize how small you are, how great he is. Micah says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what Enoch did in faith. Nothing else said about his life other than that he was the father of Methuselah, the father of other sons and daughters, but that he just, through those 300 years, he walked with God. What is that? Jeremiah Burroughs in his little book called Rules for Walking with God. It's kind of a treatise that he did. He's trying to draw attention to what does this actually mean in life? And I'm just going to read these. We won't take time to talk through them. I'm going to quote at least one scripture, but he said, walking with God is seeing God and setting God before you. Obviously, that has to be by faith. Walking with God, he said, is living as if in God's presence, as if God was right there so that my Way of living is consistent with he's looking at me and he's seeing me. Walking with God is imitating God in his character. 2 Kings 23, when Josiah stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord, it says to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul. And it says at the same time, 2 Kings 23, 3, the people entered into that same covenant. They also entered into the covenant just to walk with God, which meant obedience to God. Walking with God, Burroughs said, is having the same end and purpose as God, namely His glory. Walking with God is submitting to God's providences in your life, afflictions or mercies. That's not an easy one. But that is walking with God. It takes faith. Walking with God is having a holy dependence upon God's direction, protection, and assistance. Walking with God is giving free and willing obedience to God and doing good works. Walking with God is conversing and communing with Him in all, all holy duties. 
You can read the word prayer in that, right? I got to step in for a few seconds about a month ago when my dad, after a family gathering, went and sat in his chair. And he, nobody else was in the room. And he just started talking to God. And I just praise the Lord for the example of someone who's walking with God. Prayer. That's a part of walking with God. Seeking God. I stood there, and I listened for a little bit, and I thought, well, this is his time with the Lord, and I was kind of wanting to talk to him and leave, and then I just kind of stood there for a second. I hear him praying for our family. Just talking to the Lord about his family. Praying for the welfare of his family. I need to do that. That's walking with God. The last point that Burroughs made was walking with God is progressing in knowing God and glorifying him more and more. What's interesting is as the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates the words here in Genesis chapter 5, it uses an unusual word to translate the word walked. Instead of using a common word for walked, instead it uses the word for pleased. So Enoch pleased God in the last verse. And he was not for God took him. So it really is, in Hebrew, the word walked. But if you go back to Hebrews 11, when it says, by faith Enoch was taken up, that's his translation, that's his being taken from this life into heaven without having to experience death. What a blessing. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And what the writer is saying is that's the testimony about Enoch, that he pleased God. Walking with God brings pleasure to God. You ever think about that? Your prayer life, your seeking God, your obedience, your trusting Him through afflictions and blessing Him for mercies, all of those things that you do in faith as you walk with God brings pleasure to God. God delights to fellowship with his people. That's what he was doing with Adam and Eve in the garden until they sinned. But if you look at Revelation, there's a return to that. When God brings about a consummation of all the ages, what are you going to find him doing? But dwelling with his people, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. There will be fellowship again. Face to face, in his presence. But now we fellowship with him by faith. We fellowship through the word, through prayer. Enoch was taken up. He didn't experience death. That's the reward he experienced for his faith. Now, there's a whole lot of other questions we might have. Was Enoch, you know, was he just like everybody else? Is he going to die? Well, we could try to answer all those questions and think about the other texts of Scripture that draw attention to it. But we have a simple point here. 
And that simple point is that Enoch walked with God and it pleased God. And he did that by faith. It takes faith to do that. Now, this is not Abraham taking his son to an altar at the command of God and nearly you know, offering him up and taking his life. It's not that. It's not building an ark. It's just daily fellowship and faith in God. You might say, I don't think I could ever be Abraham, but could you do this with God's help? Would you seek him today? Maybe you haven't been walking with God. Maybe you've been living for yourself and living for your own purposes, but you understand God's will for you and for me in this world is to walk with him. Today could be the first day where you actually put your faith in Jesus Christ and you actually begin walking with him and you walk with him your whole life and right into eternity. Now, there's no promise that we're going to be like Enoch and not experience death, but we will, if we believe in Christ and we trust in the gospel, we will be delivered from the power of death. There's a wonderful promise with faith. Look at verse 6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So this is essential. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. God grants life through faith. He grants forgiveness through faith, grants fellowship with himself through faith, and he is pleased when we exercise faith. And I'd ask you today, do you have faith in God? Are you trusting in him? Let's quickly look at Noah. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence or in fear, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It's also said of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 that Noah walked with God, so that certainly would be an exhibition of his faith too. But the writer of Hebrews draws attention to something else. It was something that God commanded him, he warned him about that a flood was coming. The flood was going to come because the world was corrupt, it was filled with violence. Genesis chapter 6 says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And he said, I'm going to destroy this world. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God graciously told Noah of what he was going to do. Noah believed God and God gave him instructions to build an ark for the salvation of his household. And that's what he did. You look at Genesis chapter 6 and you see the dimensions and then you see the work that Noah must have had to do to build that huge ark to not only house his family, but all the animals that God was going to preserve. In the process, as the writer here describes it, what Noah is doing is he's showing a fear of God. There had been no rain. There certainly hadn't been any kind of a flood like is described in Genesis. So all of what Noah understands is from the mouth of God from the declaration of what God was going to do. 
this is really the essence of faith. He, he hears what God has said, God's word. He accepts it to be true, and then he begins to live his life and every day on the basis of what God said he's going to do. That's faith. What he saw ahead was not in his eyes. He couldn't see it. It was only promised in the word of God, but beholding what God had said, what he believed God had said would happen, he believed God was true. This is going to happen. I need to prepare for it. And it was his, look at the verse, it says, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Fear of God. Faith in God, fear of God, they go hand in hand. Walking with God as well, fellowshipping with God, all those things go hand in hand. And as he's doing that, what's he doing? Look at the end of the verse. It says, by which he condemned the world. Noah and his life stood in stark contrast with the world that was just simply eating, drinking, and saying, be merry. Remember, Jesus talked about in the Gospels, just as in the days of Noah. In other words, life just continued on for everybody else. Noah's this crazy guy thinking that something's coming, so he's preparing for it. But people are getting married, people are having parties, people are just living their lives without the expectation or without the trust that there was coming not only a flood from above, but God was going to break the fountains of the deep and bring water from below and above and destroy the world. Have you ever seen one of those videos where a sudden gush of water takes someone by surprise? A tsunami or something like that. People just weren't expecting it. One day I was hiking at a waterfall in Hawaii. There was a riverbed that was fairly empty. And I did see the sign at the beginning about flash floods. I didn't think much of it. It wasn't really raining a lot, just kind of sprinkling. So I walked to the falls and there were other people there too. Got to the falls, beautiful falls. Walked back, took my time, picked a couple mountain apples. I got in my car. I rode to my uh, relative's house who lived nearby that area in Hawaii. And I told them where I had been. And they said, uh, isn't it raining today? And I said, well, it was kind of sprinkling. He said, oh, you got to be careful. Because when the flash floods come, they come fast. And there were some people killed recently because the flash flood came and that river filled up and they didn't know what was coming and it just took them away. Noah is the kind of person who put up the sign, right? He put up the sign. He's a preacher of righteousness. He's warning others. He believed, and his household was saved. But everybody else on the earth during that time, this is not a local flood. Everybody else on the earth and all the animals that were not in the ark, all destroyed. Mountaintops were covered. 
Noah's faith, it says, condemned the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. This is an interesting phrase. It's the by faith righteousness. It's different from the by works righteousness or the by law righteousness, or I could add a few things, the by baptism righteousness or the by going to church righteousness or the whatever you want to say is your standard for righteousness. There's really only one kind of righteousness that God's accept and it's accepts and it's the by faith kind of righteousness. Noah became an heir of it. That means he became an owner of it. Righteousness by faith. In other words, he's a true believer. Paul talks about this kind of righteousness in Romans chapter 11. He says, when, what should we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. There is a kind of righteousness that God accepts. It's the righteousness that is by faith, and it's specifically by faith in Jesus Christ. If you have that kind of righteousness, you have salvation. If you have that kind of righteousness... You can fellowship with others who also believe in the Lord. God brings us together in the church, and we have opportunity not only to rejoice in that gift of salvation, but to rejoice in the way that He has accomplished that through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. That's what we do when we take communion. We rejoice together. Now, we need to certainly examine ourselves and consider our lives and Make sure that we're right with God. But as we do, this is an opportunity to commune with one another around the body and blood of our Lord, these symbols of his body and his blood to remember him. May the Lord help us to remember him today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we bow, we are grateful for teaching of your word regarding faith. And I do pray, even as we've considered this morning, if there's someone here who does not have faith, has not turned from their sins and repented and believed in the Lord Jesus, or maybe they're just putting on an act. They don't really have true righteousness. They're only saying that they do, making it appear as though they do because they're here joined with other people who do have faith. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them their heart. Help us all, Lord, to examine ourselves, to see whether or not, first of all, we're in the faith, but if we are, Lord, to make sure that we're right with you. And we ask in Jesus' name.